So our very uh, male and authoritative Google voice tells us that this call is being recorded. So here's our custom-made intro for uh, this recording. We haven't had a chance to record for a couple of weeks, and the last time we visited, we were talking about imminent, um, one of three words that sound a lot alike but have very, very different meanings. That was a great conversation. Um, we didn't finish it by any means because we never finish any of these. But that got Bob thinking that there's a a branch off imminence that needs to be explored. So technically, this would be sort of part two of the imminence discussion, but it is not imminence. And I'm going to leave uh, Bob now to take us into that topic. Okay. Okay. That, that's fair, Frank. Um, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait, if I may, that, that was a really good intro, wasn't it? I mean, you can just... Yeah, you're outstanding. The glare is, <laughs> is striking me in the head right now as we speak from, from 1,500 miles away. You know. you know you don't love me. Okay, come on. Come on. <laughs> oh, I love you, Frank. <laughs> yeah, you're wrong. <laughs> now, now, hold that thought, because when we get into this conversation later, we're going to take a little different spin on the word love. When You know, hmm. one of the famous things in First John, uh, the apostle writes, he says, God is love, right? Okay. Well, and a lot of people, um, it's been a problem through the ages. How do you define God? Um, you know, eminence, that is, he is very near to us, uh, kind of stands in contrast with the concept of uh, transcendent. In other words, he is not merely, he is not contained by the created order. He, he transcends and is larger than the created order. Um, you know, because one of the uh, popular uh, definitions of God is all that is is God. You know, it's the life force. May the force be with you, you know. Right. Um, and and those views are – go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that that idea of everything is God, that there there are popular sort of like Unitarian – is that universalism? Is that what that is? Because I've, I've heard that, but or is it that's just New Age? Yeah, well, these things begin to blend in because the classic one is Hindu. You know, everything is God. You know, hmm. and um, uh, you know, Nirvana and the Buddhist idea was going to descend into the Oversoul and become part of God, whatever that is. But it's all lowercase G. And what this, what I was trying to get to is how do you, uh, what the theologians call theology proper as opposed to theology general. Theology proper means what are those things about God himself is the theologist. So theos, knowledge of God, is the technical word, where a lot of times people use theology and doctrine or dogmatics, terrible word dogmatics, because it gives you the idea of somebody who's narrow-minded, but um, general theology is everything that could be known about spiritual life, from created order to angels, demons, second coming, uh, the gospels, the means of salvation, you know, that sort of thing. In fact, I think we talked, and we talked, there was a, like, 12 or 13 major subdivisions of theology general. And, uh, but 
the more I think about it and the more I interact with people, I see that that people have this fuzzy definition of who God is. And they tend to, people tend to focus on one aspect or, or another. You know, God is justice or God is holy or, or God is love. And he's all of those things. But how do you get a, a handle on an infinite being? So that's kind of where I wanted to go there and, and maybe try to unpack some of it. I'm not sure we'll be successful. I, I don't think I'm smart enough to to lay out the whole thing. But, you know, for instance, um, typically we could start with the omnis. You know, um, God is all-knowing, uh, omniscient, uh, omnipotent, all-powerful, and omnipresent. He's everywhere. So that would be one definition of God but it leaves something to be desired. And I was thinking, how how would I communicate this if I was in front of a classroom, and um, which I'm not. But you, know, uh, you probably remember from, gee, when did we have Venn diagrams in, in school? Was that middle school? I, I never learned them until my kids went to school. And I thought it was a really handy tool to, to visually see groupings. Uh-huh. I, somehow I never had them. Really? I never did. I, I never yeah. saw them until my oldest kids were probably fifth or sixth grade. And they're talking about Venn diagrams. And I didn't know what it was. So they showed me. And I had never seen that tool before used anywhere. And was really pleased with what an efficient yeah. tool it was for showing complex relationships. Yeah, and, you know, and in a Venn diagram, you may have three or four or five overlapping circles, mm-hmm. and some things extend out from the main center, the hub, if you will, and they're all there by themselves. And if I remember right, we got into set theory in algebra. You know, here's a set of things that are alike, fruit. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's definitely it, algebra. Yeah, I did a lot of that, yep. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's the same thing. And um, when we begin to talk about God, uh, which layer of the Venn diagram you look at, well, there's how you see God. And uh, I went through one of the theology books recently, and and um, I came up with, uh, I don't know, about a dozen different, Vents, if you will, uh, or dimensions uh, that we could layer, and in each one of those, we could talk about something about God. For instance, we could talk about omnis, which we already mentioned. We could talk about um, eminence versus transcendent. Um, ontologically is the, the big 50-cent word. And those things that are central to God's being, he's spirit, he's everywhere, and yet he's still imminent, you know. Uh, this is where we see uh, the burning bush, I am that I am. I exist that I exist would be also a fair translation of that Hebrew. He exists because he exists. There's uh, 
uh, what do the philosophers say? The uncaused cause. Uh, he always was, always will be. Uh, there's an essence there of, and we would use the word probably eternity. Okay, that's a good word. Uh, you and I, as we talk eternity, we usually think of eternity in terms of years. Uh, right. And yet God is timeless in that, and this is one of those things that really boggles the mind. Uh, he sees eternity past and eternity future as if it's an ever-present now, which, wow, that's, you know, but yet he says that in Scripture, you know, and that's why prophecy works. He can predict what's going to happen. He's really not predicting. He's just telling you what's going to happen, you know. Um, then we could get into another layer of Ben. We could talk about the moral attributes, um, holiness, uh, ethics, justice, mercy, patience, benevolence, uh, purpose. You know, those are our moral qualities of character. And, um, you know, and, and that's a tough, tough thing. For instance, uh, we started with this conversation with, remember that love, the interesting thing about love when you dig down into it theologically, it's not really an emotion. I mean, we think about it in popular society. All we need is love, you know, all the little songs yeah. and stuff. And, and actually, when we start looking at love theologically, it means a moral conviction to even sacrifice for the benefit of the person loved. Hmm. So that puts a different spin on John 3.16. God so loved the world that he you know, gave his only begotten son. Uh, you know, we can take a superficial, oh, God had this warm, swimmy feeling toward us poor humans that he did this. No. God loved us enough to pay the ultimate price as the father and the son, he made a sacrifice to demonstrate his commitment to people that are loved. So it's a, it's it's a, you know, our English words sometimes we look at the surface meaning of it and we forget there's a, there's something behind that. And when it comes to God, we we talk about this cluster of moral attributes. Right. Uh, the other the as the other aspects, you know, you've probably heard um oh in the in the doctrine of anthropology we're borrowing or they borrowed it from science borrowed the, the study of people, the word from theology. And in theology the word means how has God created people? The knowledge of people. Anthros theology, you know. Um and we typically say, and depending which which book you're reading, you'll either get man is a physical being and a spiritual being. Other people will say, yeah, he's a physical being, a spiritual being, and he has a soul. And almost instantly we say God created man in his own image. That means he has an intellect. He has emotive capacity. 
and he has a volitional or willful capacity. And when we say man is created in God's image, what we're really saying is this, is that our nature is a reflective of God's nature. In fact, uh, I don't you know, I used to collect coins as a, as a kid and I learned about dyes, you know. And the coin is the image of the positive die hitting the planchard. The planchard has no value. Well, I mean, it's got a little bit of maybe silver content value. But when that die comes down and hits it and puts the image of George Washington on it and stamps the date in the United States of America, all of a sudden that planchard is no longer a planchard. It's now a coin of value. Have you ever heard that? I, it's an image. I, I I think a lot of things would fit that image, don't you? Yeah. So, and St. Thomas, um, yeah, the St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, I was reading about him a little bit in, in regard to this, and he says we know God uh, where some of his qualities are reflected in our being. So we know God is a, a willful God, not in the strong will, you know, despot will, but we're a willful creature. We're an emotional creature. God's an emotional being. He, we have intellect. He has intellect. Oh yes, we're a, we're merely a knockoff the old block. We're the planter that took the image. We are not the original but we bear the images of the original. Hmm. And so that's one way. And, and he also said, but some things we know him by what we're not. Uh, we're bound, our presence, to one location for, until modern technology. You know, we didn't know what was going on, you know, the next town over. You know, we only knew what we could reach out and see and touch you know, right in our little location. And so know that God is aware of every atom everywhere. So that's where we get this omniscience, all-knowing, not just of science, but of events and people. And he says intimately acquainted with you and I, as well as the Bushman that's living, you know, in a primitive life. He's intimately involved and he has intimate knowledge of that person's circumstance, just as he has intimate knowledge of ours. So there's a contrast there that he is what we are not. And yet we bear certain images and characteristics that are reflective of who he is. But the central problem is understanding or comprehending God, right? Yeah. So well, the best you're going to be able to do then is is one of your notes said um, you're 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 summarizing Aquinas. We know God by analogy or figurative comparison, mm -hmm. quality or trait that we share. Is that the only way we could know God? No. Uh, I mean. We can, you know, that's Romans 1. We can look at the created universe and know the planning and intricacies 
you know, science has told us a lot about God's creativity. You know, but if to the degree that we're willing to to recognize it that way, right? Right. Some some people will look at the same. Two two people could look at the same. Um, what, what would you call it? Uh, I don't know. Same same natural evidence. Yeah. One sees creation. One sees evolution. Yeah. And I'm assuming that both are being honest in what they say that they see. Well, it's the right. presuppositions that we 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 bring to it, you know. Um, so yeah. is, is our is our concept of God colored that much by our presuppositions? I think so. Um, I think so too. I, I wonder about this. You know, if you look later in in that chapter one of Romans, you know, um, the apostle Paul says that uh, people look around and see the creation and they know there's a creator. And if they don't accept that truth, um, their minds become darkened and they have less ability to perceive truth. And as you follow through that passage, there's three steps down, uh, almost into an oblivion, uh, being anti-God. And, and at that point, uh, people cannot perceive. On the flip side, we have other passages, and I don't have my concordance out, but, uh, he says, you know, those who seek me will find me. You know? Uh, so, boy, Okay, so so take this idea of theology proper, and we say God is something absolutely, but we see almost what we want to see. Mm -hmm. In other words, what I'm what I want to see may not have any relation at all to what God actually is. Yeah, yeah, and at some point we have to set aside what do I want? I mean. you know, you came, you know, I came up through the catechism to some extent, and I had a basically God's out there someplace, but I don't know how to know him. And I think a lot of my reading, you know, my middle school and high school years were spent reading books, and even the first couple of years of college, seeking, well, what is truth? Where is, where is God revealed in this? Yeah. You are and seem to have come up more through a philosophical reading. And, and what is philosophy but seeking truth? I, I mean, it should be anyway. Um, I, that's how Socrates described it. I, I just finished, finally, it took me uh, four months to do it, but I finished reading The Death of Socrates. And the way he describes philosophy, you and I would describe as religion, you know, the, in the old-style usage. Yeah. That was a religion, and he had a confidence in life after death, the permanence of the soul, the existence of the soul, the judgment of the soul. It was crazy reading what he was saying, and I didn't come up that way. I came up more, um, my mother was sort of a Catholic, and my father was definitely an atheist, and there was a little tiny bit of Christian education, and then my folks got divorced, so then nothing happened at all for many, many years until I started going to college and actually reading. And that's where I started to get interested in philosophy a little bit, but mostly because that was happening because God was calling me. 
And around mm-hmm. that time, I, I ended up in these classes where they were studying the early church or they were talking about, um, you know, the spiritual history of America. And I had to buy a Bible for one of these classes. And all the Bible instructors there who were writing about the Bible were atheists. Okay. So they knew Greek, they knew Hebrew, they, they could produce books, but they didn't know God at all. Mm. So that was sort of the door I came in on. And in the last couple of years, I've gotten uh, a renewed interest in what these philosophers were actually saying. And I've been surprised to find out how much of what they say confirms what Paul said in Romans 1 about you know, whatever you needed to know about God was already written into the creation. Mm-hmm. So we had very different growings up, um, but I think we we more or less made it to about the same sorts of place. No? Yeah. yeah. Well, and, you know, and, and maybe I, I hate to make something, you know, as a rule of thumb, but, you know, everybody seems to have a burning bush in their life. That's right. You bet they do. And I had one, and so did you. And, you know, when you turn aside and say, huh, that's different. That doesn't fit with my expectations. Let me examine that. That's kind of a burning bush experience, you know. I Uh, had this in a class in college. They made me take some science, okay? Uh, It was a general education requirement, I guess, and I was Mm -hmm. a history major, but I had to take some science. So I had taken a geology class, I had taken an oceanography class, and I'd run out of sciences that I could make sense of. So I took a class on something called conservation issues, and Mm -hmm. it was front to back, top to bottom, all the way through, new age theology. That's all it was. And Mm -hmm. they went hard into... uh, the Big Bang and the universe is alive and we're the consciousness of the universe and the universe is a story and we're, we're it. You know, I desperately wanted to believe those stories. Desperately. Oh, man, did I want it. Because what they offered was a sense of order and a sense of structure, and I desperately wanted to believe them. And the deeper I dug into two parts of it, one was the Big Bang and the other was the, the where life came out of the primordial ooze, Mm-hmm. The deeper I dug into both of those stories, the more troubled I became that this story I'm being told can't possibly be right. It can't be the whole story. There has to, There's clearly something missing. And around this time, I ended up in classes where I had to buy a Bible, and they're talking about the, the, the creation story. And I'm as dim as I was, as spiritually dead as I was, the Lord let me see that the Big Bang tracked beautifully with the creation story in Genesis. Mm-hmm. And then, then the question becomes, well, how would Stone Age people, before written language, how would they know that? How would they have worked out the right order of creation? That was yeah. a stumper for me. That was one It was insolvable. It was not a solvable question. And ultimately, it was the burning bush. That's why I'm telling you the story. Yeah. It became a burning bush where I was like, wait a minute, this makes no sense. What? There has to be more to this. And as I started to try to find out what more was, it was just part of a process where the Lord called. That's mm-hmm. what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at, at any rate, uh, 
how do we get off on that rabbit? But, you know, it's, it's part of, well, it's not a, it wasn't a rabbit trail at all. It was, this is it. This is the whole conversation of how are you understanding or processing or living with God? Mm-hmm. Well, you're either, look, so this branch of this discussion we got to because I, I said, you know, two guys could look at the same natural phenomenon and arrive at very different conclusions. One would say creation, one would say evolution. Yeah. And that's, that's what it was about. So, so how we process God and everything has to be processed. Everything has to be processed. You know, mm-hmm. what, what do you think of fentanyl and how people, you know, take too much of it and they're dying in the streets and why do you think governments allow that to happen? And all of it has to be processed. And whether all of it has a spiritual component or not, I don't know, but, it, but everything in life does have to be processed and it ultimately gets processed through some kind of a lens that we all seem to have. Right mm-hmm. in, in in the old days, my lens said there's no God, and I really struggled as a result of that. I'm I for the last good while I've been looking through lenses that say Jesus is the Son of God, and all things were created by Him, for Him, through Him, and for Him, and in Him all things consist. Right, you know, out of Colossians, and the world makes perfect sense. Well. Pretty, pretty nearly perfect sense, but it makes better sense than it ever did before. I don't have a better way to describe the world. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the the fact, that, well, and this is one of the attributes of, of God, too, that he's primarily a spirit. He, he only adopts a body as a concession to communication with us. You know, the incarnation was, you know, it, it says he he emptied himself to be incarnate. To communicate to us that it's primarily spiritual, and if you take a, that thread and follow it, uh, the the created universe, the physical universe, is just a big object le- lesson for a deeper spiritual level of existence. Could could you say that one more time? You're saying that God putting a body on himself was a concession. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, you know, it says that, that, uh, what's the exact wording in the New Testament? Uh, um, that, yeah, he, he conceded. Let me get my electronic concordance up and see if I can find that verse. But it, it's basically, uh, well, you know, people use the analogy, if you were, uh, you know, a keeper of name an animal or ants, you know, uh, you couldn't communicate with them uh, until you got down to their level. So that's where we say, okay, the second person of Trinity representing the Godhead had to become human in order to effectively communicate. And Jesus hmm. said, who has seen me has seen the Father. Yeah. Um, come on. Well, interesting. That's really interesting. I've heard that before about the ants, right? And you got to become like them to communicate with them. But I never thought of it as a concession, meaning I just can't learn any other way. So to get me there, somebody has to change. I can't change. So it's God. I never. I guess I never really thought of it that way. But that would be right, wouldn't it? Yeah, Philippians two seven says. Now we got to back up a verse, I think here. 
have this attitude in yourself, starting in verse 5, which was also... Let me, let, let, let me get there. Just give me one second. Okay. Philippians, what now? 2? 2. Starting about verse 5, I guess. Okay, I'm there. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, and there's a footnote in my version, uh, the word grasp, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Huh. And so, you know, I would use the word concession. Uh, you know, let's see, grass. Uh, but the idea is, okay. No, go go for it. But, but the, the word concession implies that you're having to give something up to get something, right? Yeah. It's not yeah. exactly transactional, but it it could be. But it could also be relational, right? Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't mean that just because I'm giving the thing up that I'm losing, and it doesn't mean that I'm giving something up so I've I've got nothing of value back, or that I've um, or I've spent something, right? You know, you could hand money over as an expense or as an investment. So just because you you gave your cash away doesn't mean you have nothing to show for it, right? And so the idea of a con- concession means you're to break the thing loose. I'm sorry. Uh, I was tra- I was trying to put an illustration in there, but continue your line of thought first. I, I just I uh, I lost I lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, I'm thinking you know, when we concede, you know, it's you know you see these things on YouTube where the the owner of the company walks in and in street clothes and you know hobo clothes and see how he's treated, and, you know, he concedes to appear less than he really is. He knows who he is. And, you know, he fire everybody in the business, you know. Uh, there was a YouTube I saw a few weeks ago, and I don't know this. You don't know how true these are, but this restauranter with no heirs, goes into each of his restaurants in the chain and see who treated him well if he dressed as a homeless person. And the, the guy that treated him well had the heart to be a true restauranter and a servant of the public, and that guy inherited the chain, you know. Um, it's, you know, you don't know how true that is, but, but we have the same thing, you know. Uh, Jesus, you know, don't you know that I could call a legion of angels instantaneously? But I'm not going to because I've conceded to live within the powers and the limits of human being. Oh yeah, he healed and, you know, and, and he raised the dead and he did some of the prerogatives, but the normal teaching, he does them under the will of the Father. He doesn't really, I mean, he does take it on himself, but it's it's all in submission to the Father's will to live primarily as a human for those 33 years and become an image 
uh, where he can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The humility, the, uh, yeah, God's God of justice, but he's also a God of patience. He doesn't invoke instantaneous uh, punishment on everybody that says a bad word instantaneously. You know, he defers his patience. He defers the justice part of himself. Yeah. Um, so a concession then, it, it's not like you're giving something away. That could be implied. You know, sometimes that word's used that way. And sometimes it's, it's I've lost. But this is different. What this implies, as we've talked about it, is, and it's funny too, because you have this as a, as a rabbit trail in your notes. And, uh-huh. and this is pretty cool that we're exploring this, um, about a concession. But instead it's sort of like, try this on for size and tell me what you think. Okay. It's, I've wondered about this for a while and this sort of fits here now. So at creation, what, what God made was something living that was not an automaton. And I, I don't think I'm saying that word right. I've heard it pronounced different ways before. But an automaton, something that, that does not have free will agency. It doesn't have that. He, he didn't create a robot. That's right. He did not create a robot. Okay. So he created something that's, well, I don't know anything about, you know, fire creations, if there were any, but I don't think there were. But something unlike any of the other created beings in this realm now, right? We're not whales or, you know, rabbits or whatever, right? We're just people. But because we have this thing, this agency, this free will, we become, I'm going to say, unpredictable. And yet God can see eternal forward and eternal backwards through the through time existing outside of time. So all things are in eternal now. So when he set this thing in motion, doubtless knew that it was going to require something very much out of the ordinary, something rather unexpected from our perspective in order to be successful in in accomplishing what the creation set out to do, which was create the bride of Christ. Mm-hmm. Is that? I, I realize that that's probably right on the edge of like really serious error. <laughs> well, you know, it, and, and we're getting into something here that that we have a degree of freedom. Um, you know, different schools of theology say, no, no, we're we're all double predestined, and uh, we're destined to become believers, and we're destined to be like Christ, and there's no choice in it. And, you know, the other camp says, no, no, we have uh, a free will. We're free to choose, uh, but properly understood, only within a certain parameter. You know, um, in in a business employee, employer role, military or whatever, uh, you know, a person is given a certain, what would you say, venue Latitude. or yeah, freedom. Flexibility. Flexibility within certain boundaries. Mm-hmm. Guardrails almost, yeah. Your authority yeah. goes from left to right this far. Do whatever you want in there and just let me know how it all goes. Yeah. Yeah. And here's my intent. We were talking about that before we started recording about a command. All we tell is the intent of the operation to the officers and the officers tell it to the 
senior NCOs and so on, and, and that's a good thing. And you have certain latitudes you can adjust on the fly because you know the commander's intent. Right, yeah. And, you know, I, I had a little bit of a debate with somebody this week because they were coming down real hard on the, you know, uh, no, no, we really don't have any choice. And those that are lost were destined to be lost. And, and from God's eternal perspective, he sees that they're lost. He has what the people in the Arminian camp would say, foreknowledge about who will reject. Yeah. I don't know how to blend those two together. Yeah, you know, the whole counsel of God has to say both are taught. You know, God knows, God elects, but man has to choose. And he has the responsibility to choose. Because if he can't choose, then he has no responsibility. But yet, God will hold men accountable for wrong choices. Coming at it from the back door, that means the man had the responsibility and the freedom to choose yea or nay on whatever. Okay, so so take that point where, um, and you were the one who, who really helped me to think about this from a long time ago, that on some of these doctrines, God, God has clearly laid out um, two seemingly opposed or opposite uh, points, free will, mm-hmm personal choice. Mm-hmm. And they don't really affect your salvation at all. The things that affect salvation, those eight or nine cardinal doctrines, they, they don't have a second point. There's no other way to interpret, you know, is the Bible without error? <laughs> there, there, you know what I mean? There's there, there's, no, there's no other point of view on is Jesus the Son of God? There's nothing, there's no second point there. Not in the script. People will make up no. things, but script. Oh, yeah, in- yeah, yeah, right, right, right. So, so all these people with their wacky doctrines, they can make stuff up. But the Bibles, no. The eight or nine core doctrines, those cardinal doctrines, those, those are single point. That's it. But the rest of this stuff seems to have points on both sides. And it might be, and I'm just going to test drive this theory, it might be that it's between those opposites where you can plainly see them in the scripture, both sides. But maybe it's between those opposites held intention is where the Lord actually is. And the best we could do is describe, meaning, or maybe circumscribe. I don't think you can circumscribe the infinite. But you can begin to describe certain arcs along along a path. But you can't get all the way around it. But but at the very least, you can start to get some sense of 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 a rough outline of parts of it. And I'm wondering how you think of that idea that that it might be that the Lord is living in that unapproachable middle place of the infinite between those two opposing points. And if we cared to, we could probably make up 10 others, 20 others that are Mm -hmm. equally opposite uh, doctrines, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, and you start to, maybe, maybe you could start to say that, you know, both are true. And if both are true, then the Lord has to live between them. And if he does, what does that mean? It means that he's ultimately unapproachable because he's that region of between those two opposites has to be infinite because it's unbridgeable. You can't get there from here. You can't make those two kiss and agree ever, right? That sounds a little weird, but but mathematically it would make a lot of sense. Well, let me go down a trail that hopefully it will will add some some thought to it. Um, 
As an undergraduate, I studied a, a psychologist by the name of Raymond B. Cattell. And he was real big on studying human personality. And if my memory serves me correct, now this goes back to the late 1968 or 69 when I read it. Uh, and he described, I think it was 276 character traits that human beings could be placed on different scales. Hmm. And, uh, and he would place these things in tension or in a triad or, you know, you do kind of Venn diagram sort of things with them. And, but I don't think he really comprehended the full range of human, what it means to be human. You know, it, it scratched the surface more. And, and when I apply that to God, you know, he gives us you know, the omnis, he gives us his moral attributes, he gives us uh, transcendent, he tells about his spirituality, and he hasn't got to 276 characteristics, but we know that we cannot comprehend all of the characteristics of God. He's just given us the the, the surface ones that we have a chance of relating to. I don't want to use the word comprehend because we don't yeah. really comprehend them. Comprehend means we globally understand at its root. We do not globally understand. But he's given us enough that we can see that this is the infinite being. He's got myriads and myriads of traits, which immediately goes into one of the other areas of theology proper. And it said that God is simplistic. <laughs> Can you say what? Well, what do you yeah, mean? yeah, you, you, yeah, you lost me. And and I I mold that over and I say, okay, Lana, how do how do I communicate that? You know, as a sometimes psychologist, I would say, oh, oh, a human has an integrated personality. He knows who he is. He knows his core values. He knows his attitudes, and he knows, because of those things, how to operate in various circumstances. Okay. So, in sense, that human is simplistic. He's, he's an integrated. He knows how to shift roles from friend to father to employee, employer, boss. He's simplistic in the sense he doesn't have any, uh, again, let's use a big psychological term, cognitive dissonance. He doesn't have any conflicts within himself over how he melds his various characteristics to a singular self. Hmm. So God is simplistic in that sense. And so fully, you know, fully integrated then as a personality. As fully integrated as a personality. I um, mean, you know, when we when we study mental illness. Uh, what we see is the fracturing of the personality, where somebody, uh, you know, a, a police officer shoots somebody in the line of duty. You know, if he's integrated, he understands that he's acting as an agent of the state. He still has a problem. He works it through, yes, I was the point of the spear, but it's okay. He's integrated. The unhealthy personality has a breakdown because he can't reconcile one action 
with the greater good, the deeper value of protecting society, protecting this community. Hmm. And so, yeah, we would say God is a fully integrated personality. He's simple, not in the way we'd say, oh, you simpleton, but rather he's simple in that he doesn't have any conflicts within himself. He doesn't wing his... Yeah. Go ahead. Would the opposite of simplicity there be complexity? Well, I'm not sure. It's not you. He is complex in that he's got a lot of moving parts, but he's simple that they're all integrated. Have you ever taken apart a watch? When you say that, the real question is, have you ever got it back together again? But, yes, I have taken a a watch apart, and it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Now, it's simple in what it does, but when you pull the back off it, you see the jewels and you have the, the, the escarpment and the gears and you have the multiple gears and you have the stem and there's a great complexity in there, but it performs a simple task, a rather remarkable task, actually. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and, so when we begin to look at the characteristics of God, okay, he's spirit, he's justice, he's patience, he's love, he's no conflicting role, motives, uh, his value system is all squared away. Uh, but when it comes down to it, uh, he's simple in the sense that, you know, he, he's not wringing his hands, oh, Adam and Eve ate the apple. Oh, what am I going to do now? You know, he saw it coming. He had a plan. Hmm. And, you know, when we mess up doing something that he's really unhappy with, he's he's merciful enough to say, yeah, but the blood covers it. And, you know, when the real evil guy does something evil, uh, God says, "Mm, I've noted that. For the proper time, justice will be served. And, you know, he doesn't, um, you know, in fact, the interesting thing is, you know, uh, uh, when I was reading some of this stuff, we talk about God being an angry God. In terms, uh, usually angry means that we've lost control of our emotional self. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in God terms, He's angry in the sense that uh, he wishes it not be so, and he will straighten it out in due time. Is there an emotional, yeah, maybe there is an emotional, uh, you know, why does, you know, but he's not surprised. Uh, but he has not lost control because something doesn't go the way he would prefer. And it goes back again to that. how much degrees of freedom has he granted to, to the human race generically and to us as individuals? Well, it, it appears to be a lot, but I'm going to guess what you're going to say is maybe not as much as I think. <laughs> well, you know, when you look at, at uh, uh, Jesus and the way he operated, uh, you know, with his disciples, you know, the Sabbath was made for man, not 
not man for the Sabbath. There's a, there's a scaling there. Uh, did you not notice that David took some of the showbread and gave it to his troops? There's a, there's a, a great degree of freedom. You know, the church we're in now, um, our pastor, you know, dropped out of being a pastor because all the legal rules and cultural things which were not biblical that he was expected to live up to. You know, he had to have the fancy hairdo. He had to wear a three-piece suit while mowing the lawn. <laughs> you know, and, and there was this whole collection of things. And, you know, I don't think God really cares what kind of a suit he wears when he gets in the pulpit. You know, decent, normal, whatever's appropriate for the situation, you know. Um, I think he's given us a lot of freedom. You know, was it First Corinthians? No. John, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there freedom indeed. Yeah, but, okay, so there's a there's an outward appearance of freedom like that mm-hmm. that says basically, and I've thought of of life with Jesus on, on these terms for a long time. And what I've thought of him, the picture I have had in my mind is a narrow, um, um, it's sort of like a hallway, but think of how you move livestock. Right, a, a narrow fencing, like a chute, and the chute mm-hmm. goes on a long, long ways. And when it opens, it opens out into this really wide table land, really good pasture land where the the grass is up to your waist, right? Mm-hmm. And it's almost as far as you can see. It's like this, and then there's fencing all the way around it. So in other words, it's a big playground, and you can't possibly get in trouble. Okay, mm-hmm. just Go and enjoy and just do you, right? Just enjoy. That's how I've thought of life with Jesus for a long time. That is exactly the picture. But that's how it looks like when I'm thinking about the freedom of how to live the right way with with Jesus. But there's a a lack of freedom on the backside that says if if you decide you don't want to live this way, then the world becomes a whole lot of do nots. And it becomes hard, really hard. And that's where you start to give up your freedom because now it always has a, a, an outcome, right? It, it always does. And it, and it always has a kind of negative outcome that's really largely inescapable unless the Lord gives grace. Mm-hmm. So if I start lying to people to get ahead, there is an outcome of that. And if I start stealing or doing any other thing like that, there is going to be an outcome and it's inescapable. Where the mm-hmm. opposite in grace, where I'm living the right way, is nothing but freedom. The other one is nothing but uh, imprisonment. It's a really difficult life because it, it becomes increasingly cramped and narrow. Oh, it's stifling. Oh, it's oppressive. Well, that's what the Pharisees basically had structured, a religious system. That it wasn't about God, it was about being rules. And you can't obey the rules. And if you take God out of it, you can't do anything but do the wrong thing. It's, it's, I, I just don't think you have a choice. I, I think you have no power at that point to escape lying or to escape sexual problems or to escape all this stuff. Mm-hmm. I think you end up in increasingly a slave to it. If, if I'm not going to live with Jesus, I'm going to go live with the sin. And I just don't think that there's a lot of middle ground there. 
If yeah. I live with Jesus, I should have a life of increasing freedom, right? So in Christ, I see an incredible, indescribable freedom. And outside, I see this. I don't know. I, I think I think sometimes of 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 that life of sin. The, the result of the life of sin is a lack of choice. Choices just begin to evaporate because sin starts forcing my hand. You know, if I do the wrong thing long enough, eventually I run out of choices because sin has a necessary end result. Well, you know, I and, and I yes. I was just going to say, I'm thinking of the apostles' advice, you know, take care how you walk, you know. And uh, he doesn't say, uh, you know, let the church council get together and make up 49 rules of how you need to avoid sin or walk or whatever. He said, be careful how you walk, you know. You and yeah, I. Take care of orphans. Take care of widows, right? Yeah, that's that's what they yeah. told, uh, uh, you know, I'm talking about in Acts, like around the fifth chapter. They said, just, yeah, just don't well, eat food offered to idols. And you'll be all right. That's the Jerusalem Council with uh, James. You know, there's yeah. very minimal things. And, and I think, uh, you know, like the alcohol thing, you know, the the place I have my ordination credentials, they came out of the temperance movement. So about the only rule they have other than being biblical is uh, we, we've voluntarily given up the right to drink alcohol. That's the only rule. And I think it's borders legalism, but I don't have a problem being that, you know, my birth mother was an alcoholic and I said, man, I'm not going to go there, you know. So it's not a burden to me, but there are people that would take that as a burden and resent. You mean I can't have a beer with my pizza once a week? No, we're not saying that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you can do that. Is it wise? You have to be before the Lord, you know, accountable to that decision. Mm hmm That's right. You know, and, you know, it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all behavior because we all know our vulnerabilities. And, uh, you know, it's just things that we avoid because we say, mm, you know, um, that's a temptation, you know. <laughs> I'm taking it. Po- yeah, yeah, yeah. It's poison. Yeah. Me, right. I don't, I don't want to. Yeah. Certain stores you avoid because of the alcohol and the massive porn shelves or something, you know. Um, anyway, uh, we're we're really off the nature of God here, but no, but, I uh, think Bob, we're squarely in the nature of God. I think this is you know, it. He has given us a great degree of latitude and freedom. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, it's we we are child of the king and you know if you were part of the English royal family you would have certain obligations and if you understand that uh, you wouldn't throw it in people's face you know and uh, did you see that YouTube Uh, it's it's a funny story Um, this American couple was walking in Scottish Highlands and they came across a man and a woman walking in the Scottish Highlands. And uh, uh, they got chatting with, with this couple. And couple to couple, you know, we're from America. Yeah, we're from 
from London, and you know we have a little cottage up the way here. And the the man says and asks the the man from Scotland there, well, what do you do? Oh, I I work in the palace. Oh, really? Oh, have you met the queen? Oh, yeah, yeah, I've met her. She's she's got a wry sense of humor at times. And, you know, they chatted and went on. Well, after Queen Elizabeth's funeral, this came out that actually the guy was the bodyguard for the Queen of England and the couple had randomly bumped into the Queen of England and her guard on a hike and didn't recognize her. I think I think that's really interesting, don't you? Yeah. And you know How confident. That, yeah, do you have to be, oh, I'm the queen? You know, she didn't say that. She just chatted with them like normal people would. (laughs) (laughs) That's a picture of laying aside your your royal prerogatives and just, yeah. There's an example I used all the time my kids are growing up about uh, to teach them to don't, don't grandstand, right? Don't, don't be a big leaguer. Don't, you know what I mean? Don't, don't rub people's faces in it. And you remember the Minnesota Vikings when they used to play outdoors? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, they did. And, and Green Bay <laughs> still does, but, but Minnesota used to. And they had a coach for a long, long time. Uh, he's, I think he's dead now. Uh, Bud Grant. And he, and he was a great football coach and, and he made these guys winners. And I was reading something about him a long time ago. And it, and what it said was on the first day of training camp every year, Bud Grant would teach them how to line up for the uh, national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner, right? Mm-hmm. That's what he would teach them. And then, the, then, then along the way, what he would do is teach them how to act in the end zone when they scored a touchdown. Mm-hmm. And on the Minnesota Vikings under Bud Grant, you never spiked the football if you scored. Bud mm-hmm. Grant's philosophy was you should act like you've been in the end zone before. Right? Yep. And the and the rule was you brought the ball over, gave it to the ref, and went back to the sideline, but you did not have a big showy display in the end zone. And it was and it was an act of great humility because everybody else was doing it and you know, shouldn't oh. you want everyone to know that you scored a touchdown? And Bud wouldn't allow it. Yeah. I think that was I think that's that kind of restraint is wonderful. It's hard to do when, you know, I have no great reason in my life to exercise that restraint. But in others, I think it's just absolutely wonderful. Yep. Well, and and that's that whole uh, laying aside the prerogatives of your station. You know, that's what Jesus did. So the Father called him. He did go out and perform miracles in obedience, not under compulsion. I hate to do this, but we're at about an hour, and I'm starting to fade. <laughs> Me too. Joanne probably needs my help. So if you'd like, what it, you can do a handcrafted, custom-made, wind tunnel-tested outro, or I can. What <laughs> you like? You're much better at that than I am. I right? don't know. I don't know. Just get in there and start freestyling, man. I think you're doing all right. Uh, well, you know, if I was to sum it up, uh our God, was it Paul Little wrote a book years ago called Your God is Too Small. And uh, a little IV press book, it wasn't very thick. 
And if there's something that's missing in the church today sometimes, uh, we have this, what a friend I have in Jesus, uh, simplistic in, in a negative sense, view of God. And we need to understand that more than that, that he's the creator, he's infinite, he's spiritual, he's loving, he is just, but he's very patient. And uh, we need to think about how do we, you and I, not as churchmen, but as individual believing people, how do we interface with our God and creator? Um, you know, regardless of what our theological label is, what church we go to, you know, I tell people I'm a methylbacterian all the time, and they laugh, you know. Um, but it's not about our labels. It's about who's God, and I'm not. And with that, I'd like to quit. I think that's a good way to sum it up. The whole thing is about who is God. What? Who is this God? And I think that's fair. I think mm-hmm. I think that is a good way to wrap it up. Thank you. See, and you say, oh, Frank, you do better outros. I'm not sure I do. <laughs> I'm not sure I do. I mean, I'd love to think I do. Don't 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 misunderstand. I mean, I got plenty of pride for both of us, but hey. I don't think I have that skill. Have you had dinner yet? Why are you thinking about taking me somewhere? Somewhere nice, expensive? <laughs> to, to be quiet, hang up and go have dinner. Uh, yes, sir. I will hang up and go. <laughs> All right, buddy, I'll leave you to it. Okay, say hi to David. Give David, give, give David, listen to me. Give Miss Joanne a hug. Okay, will do. Take Talk care. Talk to you. Bye-bye.